welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In the decades since Xi Jinping became China's top leader, he has centralized decision-making powers, encouraged a cult of personality around himself, and moved towards indefinite rule by scrapping presidential term limits, stirring fears of a return to a Mao-style dictatorship. Today, the influence of China and Xi Jinping are felt around the world, challenging Western preeminence in global affairs and casting its authoritarian system as a model of governance worthy of international emulation. Here to discuss Xi Jinping's leadership and how he has changed the ruling Communist Party is Chun Han Wong, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal and author of Party of One, The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. Thank you for joining me, Chun Han. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So it's been more than a decade since Xi Jinping came to power, and there are many at the time that predicted that it wouldn't last. So can we begin with what is it about Xi that has made him so successful in consolidating power? Yeah, I think there are a number of factors that you can use to explain how Xi Jinping is you know, able to concentrate power in his own hands and neutralize diminished rivals in a way that we've essentially not seen since the Mao Zedong era. I think one thing to remember is that Xi Jinping actually came to power uh, with backing from significant elements of the party elite. And his job at the time, when he came to power in 2012, was essentially to try to save the party from itself. He had become rife with corruption. A lot of the internal functions of the party were not working well, even though China outwardly was doing great. It had become the world's second largest economy. There was a lot of good things going on for China. China had just done a big Olympic Games in 2008. But internally, they understood that there were significant problems, long-term uh, demographic economic challenges that the party had not been able to introduce decisive reforms to tackle. Corruption was definitely eroding the sense of legitimacy that the party could command from the Chinese people. So Xi Jinping actually had a lot of support from certain elements of the party, particularly party elite known as princelings, who are the descendants of Chinese officials and senior revolutionaries. They are seen as this sort of blue blood within the Red Party. And these people actually quite like to see Xi Jinping take charge because he's one of them. Xi Jinping, as we know, is the son of Xi Zhongxun, who was a revolutionary and a senior official during the Mao era. He was purged, but then rehabilitated under Deng Xiaoping. So he can be trusted not to betray the party. Um, So in that sense, he really had this leg up. He had support. He had been given this leeway, this political capital to do the things that he needed to do. And the big thing that he did is fighting corruption. He talked about it from the very first moment he took office. And that brings us to the second point about how he was able to consolidate power is the anti-corruption campaign that he launched is the primary tool for him to essentially, the most cynical people would say is a pure power play, that he's used the purges to get rid of rivals. And I think that is true to an extent in the sense that he definitely used it for political reasons. In in fighting, to just make sure that people who could oppose him, people who could stand up to him would be taken out. All these people who could be seen as providing some sort of counterweight to Xi, who were seen as members of a political community or political faction that were in opposition of Xi's, they were neutralized or they were investigated. In some cases, not necessarily prosecuted, but the investigation itself is enough of a warning shot against them to basically you know, stop being a potential threat. That aspect was important, but also... The corruption campaign was important for giving Xi this sense of legitimacy amongst ordinary people. Because as a princeling, he had a fairly decent career in the provinces, but nothing particularly outstanding. 
compared to his peers in the leadership. So for him to have this uh, support, to generate support from honorary Chinese, he needed something he could show them. Fighting corruption is it's a crowd pleaser. A lot of people complained about the rampant corruption in the party. And as the guy who presents himself as this tough, determined and strong leader who can take on the big challenge against, you know, that's eroding the party from within, definitely helped him consolidate power both within the party and also more broadly across China. And that helped explain, you know, how she has been able to both neutralize rivals within the party and generate support for himself from the general public. But do you think that the initial purpose of putting him in power is that he's one of us, but do you think that this is the desired outcome, that he would solidify Seoul rule to this extent within the party and that his leadership and philosophy would come to dominate China to this extent? That's an interesting question because I have spoken to princelings and, you know, people within that political circles who definitely did not anticipate that this would happen. They supported him at the time. In fact, I spoke to someone who knew Xi for a long time. He's a bit older than Xi, but they, they're sort of contemporaries. Their fathers knew each other. And he was one of those who was very supportive of Xi when he took power. He's a fellow princeling. He believed that Xi would do the right thing. He knew him as a person, as a friend. So he had that relationship with him. He trusted him to be a good person. Not that she has become a bad person in his perspective, but I think what he thinks she has done is to go too far. So there's a group of people who once supported Xi and think that he's basically taken his political reforms, his hardline agenda too far beyond what they had expected him to do. So one example is the fact that he's essentially eliminated what you would call intra-party democracy. The Communist Party functions with this idea that you know there is no broad-based public democracy. The ordinary Chinese people cannot participate in decision-making or elect their leaders in, in that sense. But within the party, there's supposed to be democratic debate. People within the party should not be punished for voicing critical opinions about current policies or uh, challenging the leader on you know certain decisions he's made. But in reality, that's very difficult on the Xi Jinping because essentially all the people who have professed different agendas, different policy views, they've been pushed out or silenced or in some cases purged. And it's now very difficult for anyone to openly challenge or even try to even provide views that you could be seen as undermining the confidence in the leader and his wisdom in decision making. So they feel like Xi Jinping has sort of climbed up the ladder and you know removed it after himself. Basically, they think Xi Jinping has gone too far in centralizing power. He doesn't need this much power to get things done, but he's gone all in. And these people felt betrayed to some extent. In initial years, if you remember back in, I think, 2013, 14, even 15, there was this hope that Xi Jinping was doing all this power consolidating stuff to achieve a more liberal goal, given the benefit of the doubt. That is not what's happening. He is essentially actually doing what he intends to do. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's fair to say there are people who do buy into this project, people who do believe that uh, what Xi Jinping is doing is right for China. And these people, uh, you would say, are the ones who are now populating the Politburo and the Central Committee. Uh, these people are the ones who have, basically, they've gone on board the Xi Jinping train. I was wondering if we could talk about one of the tools in his tool bag that he uses to employ. His philosophy is very important to how he communicates and how he thinks and believes and how he gets everyone else to go along with that, I suppose. And I was wondering in particular about propaganda and how he uses that. So on one hand, it's effective at broadening his influence, but on the other hand, it is very much restricting China. And 
you would have seen both sides of this during your career. So what is your view on how this is employed and the impact of it on the country? It's hard to measure the impact of propaganda on individuals or even, you know, broader sections of society in China because we can't do opinion surveys mm-hmm. in China. The general mood from the time when I was in Beijing and observing social media and topics of discussion over the past 10 years or so, you can definitely detect shifts in public mood and general attitudes. Before, you know, Xi Jinping's zero COVID policies really strained public perceptions about the Communist Party, there was a sense that a lot of people actually bought into Xi Jinping's big narrative, his idea that he is the guy who can bring China to its right foot standing in the world, you know, make China more respected and more capable of taking on the West at their own. Basically, the China that restoring it to its rightful stature, make China great again, right? That vision actually is quite appealing to a lot of people. And for quite some time, you could sense that people actually bought into that, especially in the countryside. They're all very outwardly supportive of Xi Jinping. I remember visiting the home of a migrant worker slash farmer in Inner Mongolia and his own bedroom. He's got many posters about the party and, you know, it's Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping. And you ask him, like, why does he support Xi Jinping? He's like, oh, he's tough on fighting corruption. He's taking out the bad officials, but he's also great on making China a great country again. We will take back Taiwan one day. Like all this nationalistic stuff that Xi Jinping has professed in his propaganda campaigns, there are people who buy into it. The lesser extent in urban areas where you know people are better educated, it takes a bit more than just sheer nationalistic propaganda to win their support. But even that was quite persuasive. But I think what we've seen after the end of zero COVID, where we had this so-called white paper protest, honor people gathering in city streets to essentially criticize how harsh and many ways inhumane the lockdowns on many residents in big cities. That sort of uprising, to the extent that it was, reflected that a lot of people started to see with their own eyes, through their own bitter experiences, dealing with the state during the COVID period. The state operates in a certain way what they say doesn't necessarily line up with what they do. And I think for a lot of people, that was like a turning point, that the propaganda messages that they have been vibing, it no longer rang true for them. And they started to seek out other views. You know, people do resist in some ways. They do understand that what the government's feeding them is a very stylized and very one-sided perception of what's going on. And people are fighting back in small ways, not necessarily like anything that is going to challenge the Communist Party's uh, ability to govern. But there are, I think, signs of resistance to official messages. And I think one thing to remember about what propaganda is supposed to do is that in authoritarian system, there are many people who profess support for propaganda narratives just to avoid being seen as being out of step with the party. In that sense, from the leadership's perspective, it doesn't really matter whether people actually believe what they're saying, as long as they stay in line, and as long as they act according to what you want them to do, that's good enough for him. Mm. How effective is his philosophy and leadership uh, style outside of China when dealing with uh, other countries and even dealing with leadership in other countries? It sort of depends on which countries you're talking about. I guess Mm. it's quite obvious that with the West, his brand of uh, leadership, his brand of foreign policy has not gone down well. U.S.-China relations has been going through a very tumultuous period, exacerbated, I think many people would say, by the Trump presidency, because under President Trump, he took on this much more aggressive, much more abrasive tone in dealing with China. 
given Xi Jinping has put a lot of stock in him being a firm and ardent nationalist, he has to fight back. You basically have this dynamic where, you know, the U.S. is seen as provoking China and China feels like it has to bite back. And then you have this escalating tensions, which the Biden administration hasn't done a whole lot to de-escalate from because it fundamentally buys into the basic premise of the Trump administration's policies, which is China is a, is a potent competitor. The United States needs to reorganize its priorities to some extent and align political, social, economic machinery to deal with this rising threat from China. So the Biden administration may not have been as abrasive as the Trump administration was, but fundamentally the policy goal is the same. But from Xi Jinping's perspective, I think he understands this would happen. And as far as we can tell, he has shown no sign of backing down. Even though we saw the Xi-Biden summit in San Francisco recently, and before that in Bali a year ago, which were both attempts to sort of take the temperature down a notch. But I think fundamentally, most expectations from both sides, you know, Chinese officials, academics, American officials and academics that I've spoken to, it's very clear that this is seen as more of setting a floor. They don't anticipate a substantive improvement in bilateral relations. This is about making sure, even as the two powers compete, that they avoid doing it in a way that can actually lead to uh, actual open hostilities. Quite a low expectation, if you think about it. But Xi Jinping would not back down from the challenge because the fundamental expectation is set for himself and the party and the Chinese people because that's the founding vision of his leadership. It's a China dream. He has to deliver on that. Mm. It's a very hard thing to predict, and I know that there's pluses and minuses, so, but the, the US have an election next year at the moment. Who knows what's going to happen in between now and then? It looks like it could be an election between Biden and Trump. Do you think Xi Jinping has a desired outcome? In in some aspects, the Trump presidency had a, a definite effect on the Asian region and had a very standoffish relationship with China during that time. But on the other aspect of things, um, Biden did remember Xi Jinping's wife's birthday and Xi Jinping didn't mm-hmm. seem to. Uh, so who do you think would have better success with a relationship with China and who do you think would get the pandas back? Fundamentally... The difference between a Trump presidency and a Biden presidency beyond 2024, I don't think it matters. The direction of travel for Chinese foreign policy is not going to change. What they expect in terms of the nature of the relationship, the tenor of the relationship, isn't going to change. I think they expect more tensions. They expect more confrontation. I think what the Chinese have been trying to do is to try to dial down some of the more heated exchanges to avoid some of these interactions from going too volatile. But I think they fundamentally believe that the United States will do its best to try to contain China, and therefore they must rise up and unite and meet this challenge. So in that respect, in terms of the more fundamental strategic direction and policy, it doesn't really matter for them whether it's Biden or Trump. But I think in the day-to-day, in terms of the tactical approach that they take to a relationship, that would change depending on who's in power. As we saw during the Trump administration, President Trump is in some ways a bit more transactional, portrays this idea that he's a guy who is interested in striking grand bargains. And the Chinese felt like that was a way they could engage with him. This is a language he speaks. And I think President Trump for them is a familiar personality. And I think they thought they could use that in trying to engage with Washington during his presidency. Whereas President Biden and his administration over the past few years, I think has presented a much more disciplined approach to China. They talk a lot about principles and, you know, setting 
clear guidelines for how they deal with China on big issues. That presents a different sort of challenge. I think from the Chinese perspective, a much more disciplined approach, you could argue, is more effective because the Chinese will know that the Americans are going to follow through on some of the things that they promise to do. You can't you know, wish away some of these policies or sort of trade them away in doing a deal with, with, with the president who's more amenable to doing deals. Whatever the U.S. is doing, they will try to make it sustainable. They try to make this long-lasting. They try to make this effective. The fundamental direction of travel, I think, is set in. From the Chinese perspective, they expect nothing but more challenges to come in the U.S.-China relationship. If Biden does win a second term, I think the Chinese will be happy in the sense that things will be more predictable. There will be less tumultuous developments compared to, say, a second Trump presidency. But it's not as if they can expect Biden to roll back any of the things he's done over the past four years. Mm. In, in that sense, I think the Chinese are bracing themselves for a challenging time to come, no matter who's in charge. What do you think is the most likely threats to President Xi Jinping's longevity? Uh, the economy, internal factions, containment, coalition by foreign adversaries. And I, I guess if I could piggyback on the back of this question, do you think that Xi Jinping has a succession plan in mind? How is he going to keep his philosophy and his thought going beyond his time in power? Succession, I think, is a very important topic. It is also a topic that is very hard to get at in the sense that you don't really know what Xi Jinping is thinking about succession. And I think it's fair to say, uh, across the board, succession planning for a leader is a key issue. It's a priority for any political leader, especially in authoritarian systems where the incumbent has this predominant influence over the choice of who's next. And I think Xi Jinping understands the importance of getting this choice right, because when he was growing up, he saw his most illustrious predecessors mess up succession. So Mao Zedong famously changed his would-be successor twice, right? Uh, Liu Shaoqi uh, was purged in the Cultural Revolution and died in detention. Lin Biao was formally named Mao Zedong's successor in 1969, and then he died in a plane crash in 1971. And then after that, he was condemned as a traitor. And then Hua Guofeng took over, but he lasted only two years before Deng Xiaoping pushed him out. So essentially, Mao Zedong didn't get the successor he wanted. In that sense, if you were to judge him by the outcomes, you could say Mao Zedong failed in succession because the guy who eventually did take over basically repudiated many of the policies that Mao Zedong put in place. Deng Xiaoping was more successful in that sense, but even then, he purged two people. He purged Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang in the 80s and finally settled on Jiang Zemin. And, you know, for a while that seemed to work. You know, Jiang Zemin led to a smooth transition to Wu Jintao, led to a smooth transition to Xi Jinping. But now we're sort of back in an era where you know, Xi Jinping has reversed some of the key reforms that Deng Xiaoping had put in place. So the two great leaders before Xi, their succession plans you know, did not lead to lasting outcomes in terms of keeping their legacy in place. And Xi Jinping himself, therefore, will be very aware of this problem. Right? If he wants to defend his legacy, if he wants to make sure that his policy outlasts him, and this is something he talks about a lot, he talks about making sure the Communist Party's rule is sustainable. And for him to do that, for him to be able to at least give himself a shot at making sure his legacy is defended, he must pick the right guy as his successor. And I don't think you want to give up that prerogative to anybody else, right? If you're still alive, you're still in charge, you want to make sure the guy you want his successor is given a best shot at taking the job and being able to stay in power, rather than sort of leaving the decision up in the air and leaving it to your underlings, the other people around you when you 
pass on, and then they have to fight among themselves to decide who's next. You want to be able to make this decision yourself and give it the best chance of succeeding. The problem is we don't really know what Xi Jinping wants to do in this respect, apart from the fact that we can tell that he is reluctant to name a clear successor at this point, because the dynamics of a political system like China's, in fact, anywhere else for that matter, is that once an incumbent leader names a successor, it is almost by definition that he himself will undermine his authority because the instinct of other people in the political elite is to start building relationships with the next guy, to establish their own relationships with the heir apparent. Mm. And this inevitably would dilute some of the authority that the incumbent leader would have. And if you allow the would-be successor to accumulate too much power during this process, then there's a chance that the would-be successor actually usurps power before you're willing to give it up. So it's this sort of dilemma that the incumbent leader has to balance between like making sure your successor can actually be strong enough to stay in power after you die. At the same time, not give him so much power in the interim period that he actually might have designs on being the top guy himself while you're still in, in charge. So it's a very difficult and dynamic process. Only Xi Jinping himself truly knows the answer as to how he wants to tackle this problem. But I think as outsiders, what we can do is to educate ourselves on the sort of frameworks, the mental frameworks that the Chinese Communist Party leaders have used in the history of the PRC and recognize the signs when certain plans are being put in place. And therefore, we perhaps can position ourselves to be better prepared to recognize when a succession planning is finally unfolding and make our own judgments and make our own planning, basically anticipating potential outcomes from this process. You were a correspondent in Beijing for five years, I believe, until 2019, before leaving in what you referred to in your book as an expulsion. Can you tell me about this and the implications? What is the current state of foreign press in China? Because you, you haven't been the only foreign journalist who's left during that time. And how challenging is it to accurately report on what's going on in the country? I was forced to leave Beijing in August 2019. Basically, what happened was I covered a story uh, about Xi Jinping's cousin. And it just so happened that this story was published one month before my journalist visa expired. And before the story was published, because we do this thing called No Surprises Journalism, which meant you would give the subject of the story opportunity to respond to points that are made against them, allegations that are made against them. Uh, you send them the questions, and so they have a chance to respond before you publish the story. So the Chinese government, we obviously send them some questions pertaining to the facts we're going to report in the story. And the foreign ministry talked to my bureau chief and told him, if you publish a story, there'll be serious consequences. And they didn't explain what that meant. But as it turned out, a month later, when my visa was up for renewal, they did not renew it. They told me on the last day. So basically, I had to leave on that same day or run the risk of overstaying the visa. That was a sort of a hectic day. What happened after that is I moved to Hong Kong, which is something some of my colleagues couldn't do when they were expelled the following year because they were being formally expelled from the country. And they were told in no uncertain terms that being expelled from China means you can't work in Hong Kong because Hong Kong is part of China. Whereas for me, it was a non-renewal of a visa, which had no direct implications for my ability to work in Hong Kong. So I was given a visa to work in Hong Kong, so I was able to work there, still within the PRC, still covering China. What happened after the big wave of expulsion in 2020? That definitely was a big blow to the foreign press corps in Beijing and Shanghai, particularly American press. It's definitely made things harder 
because you prefer to be on the ground, right? No matter how good your abilities to do remote reporting are, you know, your ability to troll websites, your ability to look up obscure data points and piece together a compelling narrative about what's going on in China. You still can't beat being on the ground, living there, experiencing things day to day. You're physically there, you're interacting with people, you are as much subjected to what the government is doing as everyone else. And things like that can really benefit your ability to do journalism because you have a much more complete understanding, a much more comprehensive understanding, having experienced things yourself. Not to say like, like some of this can't be done remotely. You can try to talk to people remotely, but it's more risky for the counterparty involved. They may get into trouble in some cases for talking to foreign reporters. There are things that you don't pick up on. But there's still a lot of foreign reporters in China and they're doing their best. My colleagues are there. We have uh, three foreign reporters in Beijing right now. It is getting more challenging because as you've seen from reports and also there's this group called the FCCC, the Foreign Correspondents Club of China that does this annual surveys of foreign correspondents to get their sense of like uh, perceptions of how the reporting environment has changed. And the last few years, the survey results have been quite bleak. Anecdotal reports about pressure being put on reporters, pressure being put on sources. And I'm not sure there's a good solution apart from doing our best to find new ways to get at the core facts that we're trying to determine, be more creative in finding ways to triangulate information. One tidbit here, you try to line up with another tidbit somewhere else and make sure you can use that to cross-check each other. That is not easy, but I'm afraid I'm not sure there's any other way to go about this job mm. if you want to keep doing it. We just have to be a bit more creative, a bit more resourceful. And essentially, it's what's a very opaque black box system. Because of how important China is, we have to keep trying. Chun Han Wong, thank you very much for your time today. It's very appreciated. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Many thanks to our guest today, Chun Han Wong of The Wall Street Journal and author of Party of One, The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. You have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. You can follow La Trobe Asia on LinkedIn and on Twitter, where we are at La Trobe Asia. And Chun Han Wong is at by Chun Han. This podcast was recorded in Melbourne, Australia at La Trobe University on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.